Welcome everyone to episode 45. I'm really excited to speak with our guests today. In our prep work for this interview, I've found both of them to be very thoughtful leaders that are running relatively young RIAs and they're evolving these businesses very quickly to best serve their clients. So I think I think our listeners are going to learn a lot from them today. Um, our first guest is Michael Wagner, co-founder and chief operating officer of Omnia Family Wealth. Michael and his business partners launched Omnia out of Merrill Lynch right about the same time Reese and I launched PFI Advisors in, in late 2015. Uh, I don't want to give away all the goodies on the firm. I'll let Michael tell you their story in just a minute. But let me first just say uh, welcome to the COO Roundtable, Michael. Hey, Matt. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me today. Perfect. And joining Michael is Ben Gurley from Hartwood Wealth Advisors in Richmond, Virginia. Hartwood launched in 2019 out of Wells Fargo Finet. Uh, ben can tell you all about the firm and the various roles that he's had as they've gotten the firm off the ground. But again, let me just say uh, welcome, Ben. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Perfect. Uh, so as I said, Michael, I'm going to go to you first. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Omnia? Sure, Matt. And again, thanks for having me. Um, so as you mentioned, we started the firm in 2015. We were a team in Merrill Lynch's private bank. And there were five of us when we came over in 2015. We now are up to 11 people as far as headcount goes. Our regulatory AUM is 700 million. Uh, but if you include all of the things that we advise on, we really talk more about advising on, on $2.2 billion in client assets. Our ideal client is really, you know, traditionally it's been what I would call a baby boomer or somebody who's been more in that that phase of life who has had a private business, oftentimes a family business. They may still be running it, but in a lot of cases, they have sold it. But in all cases, they have a family they really care about. And there's something about our approach that gives them that, that sense of continuity. And that's, I'm sure we'll get into it, but maybe a little bit about growth for the future is, as you mentioned, we're like a seven-year-old firm. Uh, we're still very much sort of the core advisors that started the firm. And I think our next phase is really going to be um, hiring, bringing in other, you know, more advisor talent so that we can just do the great work that we do for more families. Yep. Well, you know, the operations podcast here, we all know the challenges that you're, that you're, you know, you're right at that inflection point of, of you had the core team and now you're going to add to it. So I think uh, a lot of our listeners can, can empathize with uh, the struggles, uh, challenges, don't call them struggles, the challenges and opportunities, we should say <laughs> that, uh, that you have in front of you. Perfect. Well, Ben, why don't you uh, give us a story of Hartwood Wealth Advisors? Yeah, happy to. Um, so Hartwood, as you mentioned, Matt, was uh, we went RIA in 2019 from the Finet platform. Um, we're with Pershing now as our primary custodian. But Hartwood, uh, the firm, was founded in 2013 and, and came out of Merrill. Um, the three founding partners um, brought their business from Merrill in 2013 over to Finet and then went fully independent in 19. So we are a pretty young RIA. Uh, we've got about a billion dollars in client assets under management. Um, 11 employees, that includes the, the partners of the firm as well. 
And I'd say that our ideal client is kind of in that 10 to $50 million range of, of investable assets. Um, you know, we've, we've started to bring in, and we'll talk about this later, but, um, you know, some uh, integrated tax work and in some other areas that might be more consistent with the experience that people might have at a, at a trust department or a, um, at a private bank. And so I think that for clients who are looking to kind of get an integrated approach that covers not only the financial planning and the wealth management, but incorporates some of those other aspects of their financial uh, life, that's that's where we are, I think, uniquely suited to help those clients. And, um, you know, the path forward for us is, is looking at how we continue to build out that infrastructure, that service offering uh, to really get clients um, the maximum they can from a wealth management relationship. And, and that's sort of the vision for the future. And Ben, you've, you've had a fascinating career looking at your bio. You taught middle school. You've been yeah. in both private yeah. equity and investment banking, which I'm sure mm -hmm. <laughs> in private banking, sometimes you've probably felt like you were still teaching school. <laughs> Uh, yeah. But uh, walk us walk us through your career path to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. It certainly has not been a straight line. Um, I left uh, school. I went to University of Virginia, and after that, went to New Orleans to teach middle school math, which was um, definitely you know a unique and, and eye opening and uh, formative experience. And from there, I went back to business school at UVA, went to Darden and graduated there in 2013 and spent um, about three years uh, working in the private equity investment banking space. And from there, really kind of wanted to make a shift for a whole host of reasons, but wanted to get to something that was a lot more personal, wasn't quite as transactional, um, learned a lot uh, in a very short amount of time from that experience. So I'm very grateful for you know, kind of the the hockey stick, you know, learning curve that I was on in that industry. And that has really benefited um, my current role at Hartwood. And I, and I came into Hartwood at a time when there wasn't necessarily a super defined path for what I was going to be doing. And they needed somebody to come in and kind of pick up some slack from a servicing standpoint, from a relationship management standpoint. But it was kind of a, you know, an agreement that, hey, like we like you, I like, you know, the partners here. Let's see how this kind of evolves. And the more that, you know, I could add value to the firm, uh, you know, we kind of grew out of that in terms of what I was willing to really take hold of and, and take ownership of in terms of firm responsibilities. And, and so it's grown into a position that is, um, I think, you know, uh, Michael will agree, but in a small, relatively small RIA, where we've got to wear a bunch of different hats, you know, it's, I'm, I'm client facing, I'm an advisor, um, I'm, I'm a secondary relationship manager on, you know, legacy clients that have been here for a long time. I'm primarily in charge of firm operations, HR. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, we, we are all rowing the boat together. And I think that it's, it's really been dictated by what the needs of the firm are in terms of how my role has evolved. And that changed dramatically when we went fully independent um, and the amount of extra firm responsibility that was then placed on our shoulder. Well, again, I think most, if not all of our uh, listeners can, they can feel your uh, pain of trying to juggle so many different hats and do a little bit of everything. Um, I think that's the, the, the one common thread of, of all of our uh, podcast interviews is um, I just kept raising my hand and they kept dumping more stuff on my desk. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how yeah, I've grown my right. career. <laughs> that's it. 
Yeah. Well, Michael, you've, you've been in wealth management your entire career. You actually joined the family business. So tell us about your career progression. Yeah, it's funny. My, my entire career, I guess my entire life really, really grew up in the business. My father's been an advisor for 40 plus years. Um, and really, I, I went to school, originally studied computer science, uh, found economics and, you know, really developed a love for it. Once I graduated school, it really joined the family business, as you said, that was 2006. So things were still going pretty, pretty smoothly at that time, but quickly got to cut my teeth during the great financial crisis. And at that time, we were at UBS Private Wealth Management. Um, due to a number of factors, there, there were some reputational issues with the firm at the time. We moved the business over to Merrill Lynch in uh, gosh, 2009. And then again, we left Merrill and went independent in 2015. So I've <laughs> been doing it my entire career. I've moved the business, I guess, twice, if you want to think of it that way, once from Merrill to UBS and then UB, or I'm sorry, UBS to Merrill and then Merrill to the independent world. And I think you really do what's needed at the time. So we were a team of five when we launched and somebody had once told me like, look, you're not going to get rid of your headaches, but at least your headaches will be your own. And so all of these things started to pop up and it, you just keep raising your hand. Okay, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of that. And before you know it, you're, you're very much in an operational role. And at the same time, you've got your advisory responsibilities too. And exactly as Ben was saying, you, you end up wearing all these hats. So it's uh, advisor, COO, chief technology officer. There are absolutely HR concerns in there as well. So I like to think in my role, like I've done a little bit of everything here at the firm and it really helps inform decision-making and gives you perspective. I think when you're dealing with either colleagues or clients to just kind of have a fuller appreciation of the big picture that everything go that goes into making a firm like this run. We both have, have touched on it. Um, it's, it's rare, I would say, that both of our guests serve as client-facing advisors in addition to their operational responsibilities. So Michael, I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. Do you think being an advisor makes you a better operations person or is it the other way around? Do you think your operations experience makes you a better advisor? It's, it's funny because I, I do think it's a little bit of both, but I'll pick a side. I think that the operations background makes me a better advisor. And maybe it's like my background and sort of what I was doing first, but sort of like I was saying, like knowing really how everything is built and puts together interacts with other processes gives me that much more confidence in sort of our process and our system. In my past life, it kind of was, there was this black box of like operations. And you knew that for the most part, they're all really well-run firms and things go well and according to plan, but there's only so much control you have over it. And maybe it's the control freak nature in me, but knowing every little bit of the process, really knowing how the clock is built, um, gives me a, a fuller appreciation and greater confidence in, in what we're doing. So again, I think it is a little bit of both, but um, I, if I had to choose, I think the operations background and experience is making me a better advisor. And Ben, what do you think? Does, does your, does your client facing work make you better at ops or do you think your back office work makes you a better advisor? I would agree with Michael. Um, I think that it really has made me, I think, more significantly a better advisor. And I think for a lot of different reasons. One is sort of just the 
the technical knowledge around how everything gets done, how the sausage gets made, so to speak, and being able to speak, have that in the back of your mind when you're speaking to clients and setting expectations and describing the process of onboarding or the process of money movement or the process of you know settlement times. And I mean, most advisors know a bit of that stuff, but I will say that being the one in charge of developing the processes behind the scene for how we actually implement a lot of those things for clients has been very helpful. Um, just having that inform my communication with clients. I also think that um, this is kind of speaking as well to going RIA, but having, you know, a lot more on our plate from an operational perspective is it just is so much more skin in the game in terms of, you know, the level of, what would I say, just ownership over the entire firm and how it operates and why it does what it does is, I think, um, just raises the stakes in a really good way that I think aligns um, our interests more with clients and, and allows us to speak to clients uh, from kind of a place of integrity and, and um, a place of really kind of having, you know, our full, like our full, um, you know, professional world invested in this independent firm, I think is a really uh, powerful thing. And that doesn't come out, you know, explicitly, but I think it just sort of is a backdrop to how we present ourselves to clients and, and speak to clients about who we are, our brand and, and what we do. I know in a post-COVID world, everybody's sort of rethinking open floor plans, but historically I've talked to a lot of operations folks that have said, I have to sit within earshot of the advisor because when he or she is promising the client, oh, absolutely, those that account will be open and the assets will be here by Thursday or, <laughs> oh, well, sure, your alternative yeah. investment, we can get that retitled into the name of your trust. That'll be done by tomorrow. They can yeah. be waving their arms going three weeks, three weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that has happened before at Harwood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think everyone would say that, at least anyone listening to this podcast, everyone would say being an RIA is better than being in the captive environment. But running your own business definitely adds some operational complexities. So how have you navigated those challenges, Ben? Yeah, it, it certainly has. I mean... Uh, I'll echo Michael's comment. I mean, it was, you know, the firm operations were a bit of a black box in, at Finet. And, um, and really all we got was, you know, at that point, sort of your, your monthly P&L and, and you kind of understood how everything was uh, coming out from a revenue and expenses standpoint. But other than that, it was, you know, we were just solely focused on, you know, just the, the client facing aspect of the business and becoming RAA has, you know, opened up a whole world of possibilities, which is the extremely exciting and, and energizing piece of it all. But it also, you know, entails everything you need to do to make sure that your your compliance program is on point and, you know, all the different things that, you know, a, a captive environment was handling for you or, or being um, accounted for and performed well. So I think the way that we have handled that has been, I mean, at first it was kind of like drinking through a fire hydrant and, you know, you just kind of have to take it in and, and figure it out on the fly. And we're still really, I think, in the process of optimizing a lot of those processes and, and learning about more, you know, whether they be vendors or, or ways of doing things through affinity groups, you know, we're really trying to keep learning as we go through this process, which I think is key, because we don't pretend to, to have all the answers or the best answers to how we do things currently. I think one thing that we have happened upon is that we want to keep as much flexibility baked into our structure as possible. And, I, and we don't want to, we want to take advantage of the fact that we are a small and independent firm 
and not layer in levels of bureaucracy or kind of checking the box processes that just, while they might, you know, kind of serve a purpose, you know, sort of uh, uh, theoretically in terms of, okay, well, we've got to have a process for this and that. Um, I think that we've tried to really pare it down to what is the what is the the minimum that we can do in terms of a, a a formal process and allow for people to do their jobs and do them well without encumbering them with a whole lot of uh, paperwork or you know extra steps that need to be taken um, just kind of for the sake of um, you know process uh, capital P. So I think that flexibility has been a key part of how we've tried to design our, our operations moving forward and trying to maintain as much of that. And, and also knowing that as we grow and if we did start to add more advisors, um, you know, we would have to kind of start to implement more of those structures um, kind of from the top down. But that's that's kind of how we've handled it is, you know, one, just getting it done, uh, learning as much as we can to evolve. And then, and then three is keeping flexibility in the system so that we can stay nimble and stay, um, you know, kind of on our toes. Uh, and not kind of bog our people down. Yeah, I love it. Michael, how have you juggled the uh, the increased operational burdens that, that come with firm ownership? Yeah, and I'll, I'll dovetail off of something Ben just said in terms of not boggling your people down. I think a lot about, you know, when you go from, let's call it the wirehouse world or what have you to the independent space, you're suddenly granted with all this freedom and flexibility, right? You're the master of your own destiny. You can, you know, everything's modular and plug and play. You can change your vendor relationships and whatnot. Um, but with, with all of that flexibility comes a lot of, a lot of risk, right? And somebody once said like design is the art of saying no to things. So to be really intentional, especially with a smaller team, being mindful that we only have so many person hours in a day and that bandwidth is not infinite. So to really like try to, sometimes in these conversations, you feel like the wet blanket, right? Where you're, you're throwing out all of these, your colleagues are throwing out a lot of wonderful ideas and you get to be the one who's like, well, have we thought about A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z? Uh, and all of a sudden the, the mood sours and, you know, it's been a challenge and I'll take stuff like that personally because it's all just business and this is you know what we do and it's all for the the betterment of the organization. So I, I think that's definitely been, been one of it uh, or one of those items is how do we cope with being able to do whatever we want um, and at the same time focusing on the things that we really need to be doing. And I think that's just been time and experience has helped you know me and, and the team deal with that. I'll just throw out there. I think the the two biggest lies, I hate using that word, but the, the two biggest lies told to advisors thinking of starting their own RIA. One, the RIA space is amazing. You just outsource everything. And it's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So yes, I'm going to have a compliance consultant, but you still need somebody that's in charge of that. Oh yes, you're going to have an IT firm, but you're still going to need somebody that if the you know power goes out and something needs to be rebooted, somebody physically on site needs to go and unplug stuff and plug it back in, whatever it may be. So that's number one. It's, oh, it's totally easy. Just outsource it. And then two, sort of on, on, the, on that point, uh, I say this a lot, integratable 
does not necessarily mean integrated. So you're all, everyone's told, yeah, yeah, we integrate with that. And oh yeah, we're integrated. But <laughs> getting getting data to flow freely uh, across multiple systems and things is not nearly as easy as uh, it's, 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 everyone is led to believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I, I think it's usually also Nicole who end up being the person who gets to go in the closet and restart that server or... Yep gets to be on the phone call with the outsource consultant like and that, that's part of the, the the curse right of making everything look so easy uh is that all of a sudden just more and more things get thrown at you and yeah. uh it's not always so easy that's right mm -hmm. well i mentioned at the in the intro that you both have been very thoughtful about evolving your businesses to meet the needs of your clients so ben i'm going to go to you first talk to us about the services that you've continued to add to your platform over time yeah absolutely um the biggest one most recently was we actually uh, brought in a, a tax team. So that's been a huge uh, change for us. And it's um, it's been wonderful for uh, clients who are doing their tax work with that firm and um, the integration that we have, the communication that we've got between the two entities has really been a huge step up in what we're able to deliver for clients. And we're, we're working through how we expand that and, and improve upon it. Um, and, and there have been ways in which we've grown where we've actually brought services kind of quote in-house like the tax it's it's you know it's technically a separate entity um, but we've got a very tight level of integration on that and then there are other places where we've had to you know it's a little more arm's length like you know one thing that we've really been pushing on recently is finding um, really quality uh, property and casualty um, brokers that we can actually have a relationship with and, and bring them in to the point where we feel extremely comfortable having them in a meeting with our clients and helping clients think through, you know, their their entire insurance picture and, and how that could be better optimized or improved. So we've 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 added that. Um, we've also, uh, you know, through BNY Mellon, uh, the bank. So the 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 brokerage custody side of Bank of New York Mellon is Pershing, but then of course there is the you know the behemoth that is BNY Mellon, mm -hmm. and they offer um, an incredible range of of lending and um, credit solutions. And so we're tapping into that. So kind of leveraging partnerships along the way, because there is only so much you can do, uh, you know, especially if you're trying to avoid infinite complexity from a compliance perspective, uh, you know, in terms of in-house, quote unquote, which I think is sort of the, you know, the ultimate goal and the ultimate you know, kind of dream would be to have all this kind of sitting under one umbrella, which you do kind of have in these big wirehouses. But then, of course, you get the you sort of, uh, attenuating circumstances of all the, you know, kind of oppressive compliance and um, and kind of procedure and bureaucracy that goes along with it. So we've been trying to figure out how do we best package, you know, that in integrated kind of holistic, kind of hate that word because it's bandied about so much, but um, for lack of a better term, you know, approach in a way that uses our open architecture, which I think is one of the you know, primary advantages of an RIA uh, uh, structure um, by integrating either formally or um, at arm's length with kind of trusted partners and vendors to have those services available for clients. The other things that I would say, and this is so basic, but I think it's worth mentioning is that just the ability to communicate with clients um, having outgoing uh, communications that are in the, our voice, you know, kind of give voice to Hartwood and how we think about things. I mean, it's just something you couldn't do on a captive platform. And so, you know, just being able to send out newsletters to clients and um, communications about, 
you know, we had a communication go out recently that was just about the car buying versus leasing process and, and being able to have the freedom to do that has been incredible. And I think adds a lot of value to clients, um, you know, experience with, with our firm and education's another thing. So, you know, really kind of getting into getting away from, we never really did sort of the, you know, sales seminars and we still don't, but, uh, you know, bringing in people from like, we've got one coming up on um, high-end travel and we've had one on the college application process. And um, we've done, we brought in a senior living um, consultant to talk to clients about kind of the expansive world of senior living options. And, and again, that's somewhat basic. And I think, you know, something that a lot of firms do even in a captive environment, but just the freedom and the flexibility to be able to dream up what we want to present to clients and then actually execute on it has been a huge um, improvement in our at our firm since going independent. Very cool. Yeah. Michael, I, I know you've done a lot of cool things uh, at Omnia from a service perspective. Talk, talk to us about that. Yeah. And as Ben was saying, I, I think what's so cool and exciting about this is being able to really custom tailor your business for your client. Um, you know, I think a lot about our multi-generational practice and we've been able to go deeper with that. So uh, there, there were industry stats around where I think by the time when the first spouse dies, you've got like a 50-50 shot of keeping the account. By the time the second spouse dies, you have less than a 2% chance of keeping that relationship. Always struck us as, as crazy. Um, so we've been able to really go deep with client families at multiple layers of the generation because we have a multi-generational advisor group. Um, but beyond that, a, a lot of the things that people are looking for in that segment are, are continuity, right? So we hired a CIO, a chief investment officer, a few years ago, um, which sort of centralized a lot of the decision investment making, allowing our advisors to really focus on service in the relationship and sure they're on the investment committee and have a lot of input there, but it fundamentally changed the way that we work as a firm and the way that we interact with our clients. Um, and it provided bandwidth, like I was saying earlier, to do more and different exciting things. So we've started to do some of our own um, in-house funds for clients, which is not something we ever would have really been able to do uh, at any of the big banks. And that's been exciting. Uh, and continuing to add, whether it's um, different reporting options. Um, you know, as Ben was saying too, how you communicate with clients, I think has changed. I think through the pandemic, we really recognized the need to meet people where they are rather than, you know, I guess a good example is I don't have clients like banging down the door wanting to come back in for in-person reviews, right? It's been a lot on Zoom and we figured that would be one of the first things to come back, um, but we're still doing a, lo a lot of Zoom meetings. We're doing newsletters, but we also started doing video within the last year because I think for whatever reason, all of our attention spans have gotten shorter. So it may be the same piece of content, but we're delivering it in a few different ways, right? There's a written newsletter, there's a video people can read and, you know, really just trying to, like I said, meet people where they are. And I, I think there's an element of, of almost hospitality to that, which, you know, we can go into, um, making people feel comfortable and having that touch point and just knowing that we're out there. So continuing to uh, use the flexibility and the nimbleness to our advantage, um, but lean in where, where we think it, it can really make a difference. And we're all here at the end of the day to make a positive impact in the lives of our clients. And 
doing whatever we can to make it easier for my team to do that on a daily basis. Well said. Yep. Well, everyone knows that the holy grail in the wealth management space is organic growth. Uh, if you aren't growing, you're dying is the, is the famous saying. And that focus on growth, it sometimes creates conflict between the sales staff who feel they are the true drivers of growth. And then the operations staff who unfortunately sometimes are viewed as merely an expense on the income statement and not a driver of growth for the organization. This podcast uh, is for nerdy operations folks. <laughs> and I put that nerdy label on myself more than anyone. So I'm saying it lovingly. I'm not using it as an insult by any means. <laughs> but uh, Michael, talk to us about how you've learned that without process and infrastructure in place, your firm simply can't support the growth of the organization. I don't think it's nerdy at all, Matt. Uh, <laughs> or bad at all to be nerdy. Um, Look, I, I think I learned it personally, right? Just just recognizing how much more I can get done when I'm organized. You know, we want to talk about automation or integration. And that's all wonderful when it works. But I think of being like really well organized and prepared as being like, you know, the early version of automation, right? And you can get so much more done individually and as an organization when you have your ducks in a row. Um, and so that that that's been huge. And so Yes, it's communicating that sometimes to your colleagues who who may not feel that way. Um, but I think I'm fortunate to be on a small team where you could say we're relatively flat. And there is a lot of appreciation for everything that everyone here does. Um, and so there, there's an element of culture there because that's just not the sort of place that, that we want to come to work at in every day. So I guess this does exist in, in organizations um, and maybe it was more in the wirehouse world where, you know, there, there was less, there were literal walls between, you know, operations and, and everybody else. Yep. Um, but it is, I think it is really important. It's a force multiplier is really what I'm getting at. If you can have your ducks in a row, be organized and have your operations in order, you can do so much more with the same amount of time. And I think that's really important. And I think, honestly, your better advisors understand that. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned the walls in the, between sales and operations. My first job at Merrill Lynch, <clears throat> right, out of, right out of school, I literally worked in the cage. That's what it was called. You say, <laughs> you I didn't want to say that. He's call in the cage. Go talk to him. <laughs> like, how does that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Right. Uh, <laughs> Well, Ben, from your perspective, how do you see operations driving organic growth at the firm? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably similar to a lot of firms out there. I mean, our primary driver of organic growth has been referrals from existing clients. And I think that, you know, when you boil it all down, this business is about relationships. And I think everybody kind of says that, but, you know, thinking about what that actually entails in building a relationship that the client you know, puts their trust in your firm to handle their investment management and their financial lives is, is really their experience. And I think that the operations is the backbone of that client experience. And, you know, if you can't, if you can't deliver on what you tell a client you are going to do for them, then, you know, the trust immediately is gone. And I think that that's where the operations side of it is so vital because, you could have the best rapport with somebody, but if you don't actually execute on what you tell them you're going to execute on and do it 
correctly and in time in a timely manner, then you know you've kind of lost all that rapport and, and what's it worth. So I think that's the biggest thing is that our operations team here enables us to build relationships with clients that are based on actual you know evidence of us being able to do what we tell them we're going to do and i think that is um fundamental to the business and fundamental to them you know at a cocktail party or with their family you know bringing heartwood up and saying hey you know we really like these people because they've they've done they've done what they said they were going to do for us and uh, i think that's that's vital I, i don't see them I think that the mistake that's been made in the industry is kind of is sort of mentally separating to when I think the being on an RA platform brings that into full focus, which is they are they are indivisible. I mean, they are they are kind of one in the same in terms of, you know, the, the client facing advisor and the support behind it from an operations perspective that allows them to to really deliver for a client. So I, I think that it's uh, it's critical. And I also think that and Matt, you might actually have you would probably have more insight on this um, than Michael or I, but I think that, you know, depending on the firm situation or where you're at and your kind of growth cycle is, um, and I think that ownership's a really important piece of this too, is um, having ops people who potentially have ownership in the firm, because that level of um, kind of commitment and skin in the game, I think makes a huge difference mentally and and really sets you up for a long-term uh, track for success because you've got people on the boat who are being incentivized by the growth of the firm and have you know meaningful commitment to the firm moving forward. I think that is something that um, would probably be a, a really good shift in our industry is to recognize the ops people as owners of the firm as well. And maybe a lot of firms are doing that, but my sense is that probably not a lot are. So, yeah, I mean, my goodness, I could go a whole, a whole episode on just, <laughs> just that topic, but absolutely the, the, the quote ownership mentality is so important. And we do talk about it on this podcast again, more from the, how do you promote your career? And again, we've even said it on this one, raise your hand. You've got to raise your hand. You've got to raise your hand. And I do believe that that you know the ownership mentality how do you get the ownership mentality well the, the easiest way is give ownership give ownership <laughs> so if 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 an operations person literally has a a small equity stake in the in the growth of the firm they're more likely to raise their hand hey that needs fixing that needs fixing i can do that i know none of us have time so i'll take it on myself and go go fix that so uh, i think i think you're spot on and then the only other thing i'll i'll say there is when we do our quote, operational diagnostics at, at a firm, the very first thing we do, which throws people a little bit is, hey, can we hear your marketing pitch? And they go, well, I'm not asking for marketing. I'm, I'm asking for operations. They go, right, but I wanna hear what promises are being made to the prospects and how are you positioning the firm? Because operationally, then we have to actually execute on the promises. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, and so again, having the ops team really incentivized to, to fulfill on those promises, um, I think, you know, like you said, ownership is, is the quickest and easiest way to, to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah. Well, that actually leads well into our last question. I wanted to talk about, uh, I want to talk about talent. It seems that that every RIA is struggling right now to hire and retain employees. So, Michael, I'll go to you first. How how has Omnia approached talent management? Yeah, it's look honestly, this was something that I handled myself up until this year. 
Uh, so, you know, you wear a lot of hats, as we've been mm-hmm. saying. I'd be putting the resumes on LinkedIn, Indeed, what have you. And you just get this, this flood of interested parties, let's say, who, who may not actually be qualified for the job. And then fast forward to, to this year, right? We're post-pandemic. You're hearing all of these horror stories about how difficult it is to find people, especially anybody that wants to step foot inside of an office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what, what pay expectations are. And look, <laughs> my... Uh, bandwidth personally has changed since, you know, a few years ago and, you know, priorities changed. So we decided to work with a recruiter and it certainly cost us money. Not only did we have to pay the new hires more than we were used to paying, obviously the, the recruiter also has their, their, their fee. However, the amount of time and stress that it saved me was worth it. These were qualified candidates. I went from having to cull through 100 resumes, get that down to 50, and then have a number of you know short phone calls, the whole process, down to really coming in at a much later stage of the game where you had really qualified um, you know, prospective employees and made things so much easier. Um, so it, it's interesting because I had a very different approach pre-pandemic, and it's hard for me to do an apples to apples. Uh, from one to the other, but we've had to be more deliberate in what we need the person to be doing because we're spending more money on it and it's more important to us than it was. Um, And it's been, I think, a a better process for us, even though it's cost more money now in the the new era, let's say. Um, But you try to be very deliberate. And one thing when the people do finally join us is you never know what it is that they're going to grow into and what what role and contribution they ultimately play for the organization. So we try to expose people. If we hire an ops person, we try to expose them to advisory and investment as well, right? And likewise for any of the other teams in the firm, uh, because we want people to identify a passion. If they're going to be here for life, really, it's going to be because they, they connect to something and they develop a passion in it. It may not be what we hired them for in the first place. We're totally open to that change. And I think you've got to be open to that change because people even evolve over time and what interests them now may not have interested them a few years ago, but it's it's so uh, expensive and time and money to have turnover, especially like excessive turnover, um, that we, we really invest a lot in our people to expose them to everything and keep them on for the long haul. I'm speaking more than I normally do, uh, but I'll I'll give my two cents on recruiters because I've had that same evolution in my thinking. I was very anti-recruiter earlier in my career and, oh, geez, that's not worth it. And at some point you have to, it's not, is the recruiter worth it? It's, is my time worth it? The way you said it, right, is is if they're saving you time, uh, considerable time in in culling through all the resumes and and going out and actually speaking with people that aren't necessarily looking for a job that are employed. You're missing that with job postings, right? They may not be looking at job postings, but a recruiter is going to reach out to people that are that are currently employed in a position similar to what you're looking for and try to woo them over. So so all of that makes in my mind makes it worth it. And then the one other thing. I think that the RIA industry is very bad at defining roles and responsibilities. And I think working with a recruiter 
to write the job description from the from the get go, they're going to kind of, you know, have you lay down on the therapy couch <laughs> and talk to you about what is it you're looking for? How do we define this role better? And so they're going to help you figure out exactly what this person should and shouldn't be doing. And then they're going to, I believe, communicate it better than most to the candidate so that they have a clear definition of what they're being hired for. A lot of times we we post a, re, a, a job description, somebody accepts and and you say, well, good luck. <laughs> uh, I'm too busy to train you, uh, uh, I, I, but I expect you to understand what you're supposed to be doing here. And I just think recruiters add a lot to that whole that whole process. Somebody once said to me, fees are only an issue in the absence of value. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. So Ben, talk to us about how Heartwood is handling all this HR stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, kind of echoing Michael, I mean, we clearly, I think everybody wants to find competent people. I think that the harder thing to solve for and the harder thing to teach is the cultural fit there as well. Um, and that is harder to find, I think, and, and, and is a little more... Uh, nebulous in terms of how you define it. But I think one of the things that we have really focused on, you know, we always say, let's just get the right people on the bus and then kind of from there, you know, figure out where we go. And, and certainly that is at odds with, you know, or, or not at odds, but confirms what you were saying about our industry having a tough time, you know, developing a job, job description. And I think that we are guilty of that to some extent. Um, we clearly are hiring people for a role, like for instance, a client associate. Um, but beyond that, you know, giving them the flexibility to kind of figure out, like Michael was saying, figure out what they enjoy beyond kind of their core responsibilities and letting them pursue those things within the firm. But the cultural piece, I think, is is really, really key. And I think we're always keeping in mind when we're hiring, you know, the, the client experience. And, and if there isn't a, someone could be the most competent person in the world, but if there isn't a cultural fit there and they don't have the same kind of values that the firm has in terms of client service and, you know, down to just like how you speak to a client on the phone, then it's not going to work out. So I think that the cultural piece for us is huge. The, the competency piece is, you know, we got to have it, but the cultural piece is, um, is is kind of a next level up and, and much harder to find, frankly. And then from there, you know, our our staffing um, kind of philosophy or strategy is really to give flexibility to people within reason. Um, you know, we have we have people here who have young families and, and are kind of all different stages of life, and, and not having one set of criteria for every employee that they must follow and kind of working with people through the nuances of their particular personal situation to enable them to work because if they are a cultural fit and they are good at their jobs then we want to keep you and um, we're willing to kind of have you know different arrangements across our staff to accommodate that so i think that's been really big in terms of uh, employee retention and then also comp i mean i think that we would rather pay someone, you know, above market comp and keep them incentivized and, and have, um, you know, a real incentive to stay at the firm than, you know, trying to kind of get blood from a stone and, and you know, negotiate, you know, a, a more middle of the road figure. Um, it, I think that that has served us very well is, is kind of investing into people as part of our growth strategy, because I would say that one of the biggest things we've seen from a growth perspective organically is that as we have taken on 
more people who have got experience in this industry and are typically coming with a network of both professional relationships, but also client relationships, is that that has really fueled a lot of our organic growth in the last 18 months is um, bringing on really wonderful people who are kind of known in their communities and them telling that story of why they came to Heartwood. And that has uh, prompted a lot of good, you know, uh, uh, conversations with prospective clients. So I think that you can't, you can't divorce, all this is kind of bundled into, you know, firm strategy. And then that's where I kind of go back to that idea that, you know, kind of segregating out or creating verticals around operations and marketing and, and HR. I think obviously like you've got to do that from sort of a, you know, how are we going to execute on specific tasks and who's going to do those, but you've got to see it, you know, from a comprehensive perspective in terms of how all these things influence the others um, and think about it long-term and not, not get too bogged down in, well, you know, hey, we're paying this person above market and we don't really know what they're going to do yet. Well, you can always make adjustments down the road, but I think getting the right people at your firm and letting them uh, have the flexibility and the independence and the confidence of the partners here to flourish has been um, has been a really important piece of how we've, you know, kind of steered the firm through um, the last six years. I can't thank you both enough. I put a little pressure on you in my opening comments. I, I, I sold you both as very thoughtful leaders running these growing businesses, but you, you both uh, uh, nailed it and, and lived up to my uh, high expectations. So thank you, uh, Ben and Michael, for, for being here. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks, Michael. Well, I'm going to do a, a quick cheesy plug for the COO Society, just because we've been talking so much about uh, HR in this in this episode. So we spend a lot of time talking through HR issues on the, the COO Society platform. You've all heard me say many times that I think 75% of a COO's job is HR. So we have courses uh, covering how to write a job description, where to post your job openings, how to properly onboard and train employees. So be sure to check out COOsociety.com to learn more. And with that, I will say it is a wrap on episode 45. Thank you, everyone. And we will talk to you soon.